Hey, welcome to the C3 Church Victory Podcast. We pray this message will inspire you and activate your faith. Thanks for joining us. But we've been in Mark and we've, we've kind of realized that this, this whole journey through Mark that we're doing as a church is it's going to be a journey of seasons, right? And, and Pastor Geraldine did this awesome job of being like end of season one. Uh, it wasn't last week, but the week before. We had Pastor Steve last week. It was incredible. But Pastor Geraldine closed off season one. And a great season finale, right? A great season finale has, has, has closure, but also a cliffhanger. Right? Because you, you have to get closure to the, the key storyline components of that season, but you have to have a cliffhanger of the next season. Right? And so, and so she did an incredible job last time she preached, uh, two weeks ago. I keep saying last week, but it was two weeks ago, of, of giving us this, this closure with a cliffhanger. And I don't know if you're into Marvel movies. Uh, I, I, I like a good Marvel movie, watch Marvel movies, but. But Marvel movies introduced us to this thing with movies that really wasn't there prior to Marvel movies, and that was the, the, the wait in the cinema and watch the credits. Yeah. None of us did that before Marvel movies. But now, now we're like, is this one going to be one of those ones that has that little bit at the end? Like that little bonus scene? That bonus scene that like gives us some key information about, about the bigger picture, right? It's, it's never related to the story we just like watched, but it's always related to, to the bigger story that they're telling that's going on. And so now, now even we're going to watch a DC movie and we're like, I wonder if they're going to copy Marvel because it's really all they do. But I wonder, I wonder, <laughs> oh, there we go, there we go. We're awake, we're awake, we're awake. But we, we sit and we wait and we watch the credits and we wait and we watch the credits and we're like, how many credits? Oh my goodness, how many people were involved in creating this film? Wow, it blows my mind every time. And then, and then we get the snippet. And this morning's message is that snippet, right? It's, it's, that, it's that snippet that seems a little bit out of place. It seems a little bit like, didn't, I, I thought... Mark, I thought you just closed a chapter. Like, I thought you just closed a season. I thought, like, there was, there was conclusion that was really nice. Like, if you're a storyteller, it was beautiful. Like, he wrapped that whole first section up so well. There was closure and there was a cliffhanger in, in what he wrote, right? It's beautiful. And then we get this passage of Scripture, Mark 3, 20 to 35, 15 verses. Are we ready this morning? All right, here we go, here we go. It says, and then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd... Gathered. This should be a re- recurring theme that we're getting used to here. Wherever Jesus is, there's a crowd. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Interesting use of words. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. I read that word and I just see Bumblebee. I just see Bumblebee from Transformers. That's it. He's possessed by Bumblebee. That, that would probably be a good thing. He's the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. And so Jesus called them over to him. I love this. Jesus never backs down from a fight over the kingdom of God. He never backs down from ensuring that what is said is truth. Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. Why? Because he understands where people are at. 
He understands that you cannot just throw confrontational truth at people whose the soil of their heart is not ready to receive it. And so he talks in parables. He's trying to deliver truth in a, in a, in a way that is palatable, almost palatable enough that they might just get it. You know, we as a people of God are called to communicate truth, but let's be wise in how we communicate truth. We are not called to, to, to slap people in the face with truth. We are not trying to start an argument. Our goal is that we would, produce, we, we would present truth in such a way that people might be able to understand it. We're not watering it down so it's palatable, but we are delivering it in a way that people might grasp understand it. Sorry, can we, can we have where I was up to up again? Fantastic, thank you. How can Satan drive out Satan? Great question. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, you should do a study in Scripture after, on everything Jesus says after he says, truly, I tell you. It's very interesting. Truly, I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. I mean, that is an encouraging scripture right there. Truly, I tell you, you can be forgiven. Every single sin, every single thing. You online, you can be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Has anyone ever freaked out about this scripture? Just me? Just me? All right, I'm going, to, I'm going to bust some myths on this scripture this morning. It's going, to, it's going to help you out. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Is that the end of my scripture? Let's, can we keep going? There we go. Next one. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. Notice they stayed outside. They did not come in. They did not, they did not draw close. To Jesus. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are out. So some people, some people were in close proximity to Jesus. Some people had drawn close to Jesus, but his family, who thought he was mad, did not draw close to Jesus. We're going to pick up on that. They told him that your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? asked Jesus. And then he looked at those seats. Sorry, there's a humorous joke went through my head. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my brothers. Here are my mothers, my brother, my mother and my brothers. Let's get that right. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. I want to thank you that it is truth. Even if we find it difficult to comprehend, not sure what it means, does not mean that it is not our foundation. And so, Father, I pray you would speak to us today, encourage us, build us up, fill us with purpose and your Holy Spirit in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Who's pumped about the grand final tonight? Yes, yes. That was, uh, that was cue for the Edwardses up there. Fantastic. So good. All right. So, so. Context of Mark, right? The whole season one of Mark is introduction. Jesus on the scene. Hey, I'm here. I'm God. 
I'm the Messiah, not me, Jesus. I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I have all authority on heaven and earth. I have authority over the demonic. I have authority over, over illness. I have authority over, over the natural things of this world. I am announcing myself because this is who I am. Come follow me. Conclusion, I am calling those 12 from those who followed me because there is a greater thing I'm about to establish. Scene close, end of season one. There is, there is great, as I said earlier, there is great closure in components of the story there. It's a closure of the introduction, and yet we are left with a question of, oh, what's next? He's just called 12 people. Why? What are they going to do? What's next? That's going to be season two. That's going to be season two. It's going to be fantastic. But our bonus material, or our bonus scene, our, our little Marvel snippet, if you will, is very interesting. If we just look structurally at the passage, it's, it's very strange, right? We have this Jesus family... We have teachers from Jerusalem. We have parables about the spiritual realm. And then we have Jesus' family and then how he describes his real family. Very odd, if you ask me. Particularly odd that Mark would put this passage of Scripture in the, the place that he does. Right, Because it's like, Mark, this really does not seem to fit. You've just closed out the, the whole of your introduction with calling these 12 people, and we're expecting now that we're going to find out what these 12 are going to do, and yet here we have this very odd, strange passage of Scripture about all of the demonic houses and the kingdom of, of Satan and Satan against himself and the unforgivable sin. And it's like, whoa, that's a little... I, like, I don't know if you're like me and you skip over those little bits in the Bible every now and again because like, I had no, have no idea where you're going, Mark. Let's just let's unpack this a little bit. It says Jesus' earthly family. Jesus' earthly family. <laughs> He's talking back to me. Holy Spirit's in the house. Come on. Jesus' earthly family. A couple of, couple of things to understand about these guys. These are the first people we get introduced to. They didn't believe who Jesus was. They didn't. They didn't believe it. Right? They thought he was mad. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. They stayed at a distance, and they chose not to be a part of what he was doing. Jesus' family. Earthly family. Now let's look at the teachers from Jerusalem. They also didn't believe. They thought he was so mad, actually, that, that they called him possessed. They went a step further. His family's like, yeah, he's, he's mad. He's got a little bit like, just, you know, we're going to stay over here. Just everyone be aware. We think he's lost the plot. The teachers from Jerusalem who are supposed to have the authority to teach all of the people of Israel the truth of Scripture, they go even further than saying he's mad, and they say... He's actually possessed by a demon. He is beyond his own control. Everything that he is doing is actually from Satan. Right? And in fact, it says that these teachers of Jerusalem had come, they weren't, they weren't local. These were the guys that came all the way down to where he was teaching from Jerusalem. So you're talking about the big wigs of the, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the teachers of the religious law from the big city. They came down and they're like, he doesn't know what's going on. And then ultimately, they didn't want to just be a part. It wasn't a sense of separation. Ultimately, actually, they wanted to kill him. So there's, we're, we're leveling up, right? We're leveling up. His family thought he was mad. The teachers thought he was possessed. The family wanted to stay separated. The teachers wanted to kill him. So there's a, there's a leveling up. As he's 
describing these things, as Mark is writing these things, it's in this moment that he decides to go, oh, sidebar, sidebar, everybody. Um, this, is, this is the demonic realm. There's a spiritual realm, and Satan's there, and, well, let's talk about that for a little bit. Oh, and by the way, there is an unforgivable sin. So, oh, th- thanks, Mark. Um, cool. I thought, I thought we were talking about family. Like, with the, like this is Jesus' family is there. Like, it goes like family at the start and family at the end, and then in the middle, he's like, uh, demons, demonic, Satan, unforgivable sin. Cool. So just a little bit on those verses before we dive in. Firstly, it's really important to understand that Jesus' response, where Jesus in verses 23 to 30 talks about the kingdom of Satan, Satan's house being divided against himself, all of those sorts of things. You need to understand that Jesus is not necessarily talking in, in prescriptive process as much as he is trying to give an illustration of what is occurring because of his coming. Okay, so so often, like I remember, I remember back in the day, there was that great that, that was a great song about binding the strong man. I'm not going to sing it, but some of you would remember some of our some of our uh, uh, older saints in the house, right? We're binding the strong man. When when it comes to when it comes to praying for someone who is having a an experience with the demonic nature of the spiritual realm. Jesus is not trying to give us a prescriptive process. He's not saying that the first thing you need to pray every time you, you, you try, you know, we're binding the strong man in Jesus' name. He's like, excuse me. What he's doing is he's giving an illustration of what he has done by coming, by bringing his kingdom to earth. He is explaining in the form of illustration and parable what he has achieved. So it's, this, he actually tells three separate things, two illustrations in a parable. The, the, the idea of the strong man, what, this is what Jesus is saying. It's noting that for Satan to be dispossessed of the authority that he has on the planet, the one that Adam and Eve gave over to him, when they, when they were called to have dominion over planet Earth and then in the garden, when they agreed to have alignment with, with his suggestions, they handed over authority and dominion over the realm of the created world, of the physical world, right? So from that point on, Satan has been the god of this age, the god of this world, right? And, and so what, what, what has had to occur is that a stronger person has had to come and dispossess him of that authority. And so he, Jesus is using these, these terms of home and house uh, to describe this. Now, we know that Satan is strong, right? We can see the evidence of it in our world, the evidence of sin, the evidence of uh, the fact that man is trapped in sin and the result of that and death and all of these things. So, so we understand that, yes, Satan is strong. And we should, we should not be unaware. Peter tells us, hey, don't, don't, don't be unaware of Satan's ploys. Like, he's brought around like a... He's wandering around like a roaring lion looking at who he can devour. He is real and he is out there and he is strong and he has reigned and ruled on this earth for a period of time. However, we live in a moment in time where the stronger one has come. 
And because the stronger one has come, the one who was strong has been dispossessed of authority and put out of the place at which he held as his house and his kingdom. There is correlation between house and kingdom. And what we are seeing is Jesus articulate very clearly that he has come and reestablished the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God and, and, and Jesus on the earth. And Satan has been pushed out. Okay, so it's not prescriptive, it's not a process, it's him illustrating the reality of what he has done. In fact, the very reason that Jesus can cast out demons is a direct statement of his purpose to bring and establish the kingdom of light. Now, I want to clarify the scary verse for you, okay? The unforgivable sin, because like, like me, there's times where it's like, Maybe you haven't. I've sat in services and I've seen a whole range of manifestations. We'll leave it in that, that category. I've seen people doing all sorts of things. And you talk to my wife, she's, she's seen even more. She's seen people filled with the spirit running around a room with pot plants on their head. I'm not joking. And we've all, I'm going to say we because I don't want to be alone in this. We've all had moments where we've gone, mm, I don't think that's Jesus. <laughs> I, mm, I don't think that's the Holy Spirit right now. And then we read a verse like this where, where it appears to say that if you have ever attributed something of the Holy Spirit to, to being demonic, then we've committed the unforgivable sin. And, and, and the sweats start coming and the panic starts rising. And it's like, oh no, did I just do that? No, you were just judgmental. And that's okay because that's forgivable in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So it's okay. It's okay. Let me, now let me clarify. And I, I, to do this, I'm, I'm actually going to read a passage of a commentary because they, they do it way more justice than what I would be able to do. So hear this. The expulsion of demons was a sign of the intrusion of the kingdom of God, yet the scribal accusations against Jesus amount to a denial of the power and greatness of the Spirit of God. By assigning the action of God to a demonic origin, the scribes betray a perversion of spirit which, in defiance of the truth, chooses to call light darkness. You see, it's, it, we've got to understand that it's bigger. Everything is bigger than we think, right? It's, we're not talking about one manifestation. We're talking about kingdoms at work in the spiritual realm. We're talking about what was the kingdom of light being called the very kingdom of darkness. It's, it's bigger than one person doing something a little bit strange and you being like, mm, I'm not sure that's the Holy Spirit. Well, it, it, it is it is. It is, it is deliberately accusing what is clearly the, the, the impartation of the kingdom of light on planet earth as being the very expression of the kingdom of darkness. goes on to say this, that in this historical context, oh, if that was just at the front of every page in our Bible, we would do so much better in, 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 in interpretation. In that historical context, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. The considered judgment that his power was demonic betrayed a defiant resistance to the Holy Spirit. You see, their own tradition condemned their gross callousness 
as sharply as Jesus' word. The admonition concerning blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not to be divorced from this historical context and applied generally. Thank you, Jesus. So unless you are a first century AD Jewish Sanhedrin member who has come down from Jerusalem to accuse Jesus himself that what he is doing in establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth is actually the kingdom of darkness, you're good. Which frees all of us because none of us are that. And so none of us should divorce the historical context of the accusation that, that, that is in Scripture from today. It says, here Mark defined the sin that will never be forgiven. It is ascribing to Satan and his demons the works of the Holy Spirit manifest in the ministry of Jesus. It is not a single act, but a habitual action and attitude. I love this idea that it is this ongoing, constant, uh, uh, recurring attitude towards everything of the Holy Spirit being demonic to the point where, where it's called in that previous thing I read, a callousness, that idea of heart. It is far more a heart attitude, a growing hardening of your heart and callousing of your heart uh, against Jesus and towards the demonic of which all of us are free from doing. Okay, you can be encouraged this morning that this is not something that you have done nor do, right? And so out of all of that, then we get the disciples coming back and Jesus, sorry, not coming back, we get Jesus describing the disciples as being the ones who believed in him, did his will, drew near to him, and then Jesus finally concludes by calling them his real family. So just to be clear, This passage is so dense with familial language, family, home. Even the illustrations that Jesus uses are are, are illustrations of a spiritual home, a strong man's home. How can a household stand if it's divided? It didn't matter whether Jesus was addressing the physical people in the home or his family or the spiritual context at which they were accusing him of, or then the family that that after that, that he's trying to redefine. This whole passage contains a dense level of familial language. And at some point, we we need to ask ourselves why. Why is this passage that sits in an obscure place in in the recount of Mark, why is this passage so dense with familial language? It's because our our bonus scene acts as a transition. It's there for a reason. It's there to transition from season one to season two. It's there to transition from the introduction to to the main section of Jesus' teaching. It's there as a transition, but also it marks a transition. Okay, It's not just acting as a transition. It is the explanation of a transition that was occurring at that very moment. And it uses Jesus' explanation of the transition that is taking place in the spiritual realm. It is using that to explain that a transition is occurring. And the transition is related to the new family of God, which is no longer one by birth, but by belief. The whole passage is this contrast 
The whole thing is built around family and it contrasts the, the Jewish and the earthly that were all about birth with, with the future family of God, the new family of God, the family that Jesus has come to reestablish being about belief. And so we have the family that doesn't believe contrasted with the disciples who do believe. We have the earthly family that Jesus is a part of by birth co- compared with the spiritual family that Jesus is now establishing by belief. It's, it's all through this passage, right? And at the end of it, at the end of it, intertwined in it, not just is he talking about access by, by birth or belief, but he places belief at the very, the very centerpiece because he concentrates on the accusation that he is both mad and demon-possessed versus the disciples who are close to him who believed. And so we're left with a question. And it's this question that is so significant to us as believers because answering this question positions us spiritually. It positions us in the family of God spiritually. This is not about our our physical existence. This is far bigger. We are talking about our eternal state. We are talking about a decision that, that positions us in something that has an eternal nature to it. And that question is, is Jesus Lord or is he a lunatic? Because his family thought he was a lunatic. And the Jewish teachers from Jerusalem thought he was a lunatic. But the ones who thought he was Lord, he called family. Because it was that belief, it was that decision that positioned them. It's that decision. Verse 35, it says, whoever does God's will is my family. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. Whoever does what Jesus did, whoever has a radical obedience, whoever whoever believes that Jesus is Lord and therefore lives a life oriented under that Lordship, they are my true family. They are my true family because that is a family that is oriented in the eternal, not just the physical. Jesus is the firstborn among many. And we must be born again. We are called to be brothers and sisters in Christ, heirs to the inheritance. But all of that hinges on our decision. You see, our earthly family is beautiful. I love my family. It is significant. But it's finite. And it will come to an end. When we die, We no longer operate in that familial context. As painful as that can can seem to think about, it is a truth of this age. But our eternal family, our eternal familial position is far more significant. And Jesus is making this point. He's not saying that we should disregard our earthly family. He's simply saying that when it comes to it, when we're talking big picture, place in which you're positioned eternally is oh so much more significant. So oh so much more significant. The tension of this passage is it's only fully understood when we realize how much spiritual realities permeated Jesus' physical experience. 
We have to remember that Jesus came from spirit. John 1.1 says that Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. His core is, is the eternal. His core is the spiritual. His natural, his frame, his, if you were to describe it like this, we'll use some common terminology, his worldview had the eternal spiritual realm at its center. And everything came out of that. But we struggle with that, right? We struggle with that because as believers, we were physical first. We were born physically, right? The physical to us is more real. The physical to us is more true. The physical is, it's like it's all we've ever known, really, until that moment of salvation where we choose to be born again and there's a spiritual awakening inside of us and we suddenly become aware that there's a spiritual realm and a spiritual dimension. You see, salvation is not so much about being, 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 being forgiven of sin, it's about coming alive. It's going from death to life. It's not going from sinner to, to, to not sinner because we still do. Right, But it's, it's going from being dead to the spiritual realm and connection with God who rules there to being alive in Christ Jesus. It is an awakening to the spiritual realities of the eternal space being living and active inside of us. In Jesus, the kingdom of God is breaking in. I love that term, that, that imagery. It's breaking in upon man and with it the establishment of the new family of God. You see, Jesus has come from the Spirit to, to earth to establish a new family rooted in spiritual positioning, so true that it's supposed to permeate our physical reality. See, we can't fully understand what Jesus did here on earth unless we understand what He did in the realm of the Spirit. All of the Christianese that we know about loses its power and value we don't understand what did in the spirit, in the eternal. The eternal permeates the physical. When we look out at the world, we see the result of sin. We see tragedy. We see heartbreak. We see pain, suffering, disease. But we know from Scripture, we know that they are a result of the, the kingdom of darkness, of sin in our world the spiritual reality, the separation of creation from God Himself. We see it in the physical, but we, we like to live disconnected from that reality. Yet we try to draw on the benefits of the spiritual kingdom of God. We want peace. We want joy. We want contentment. We keep looking at them in a physical space when they are a spiritual reality. You know, we want to forgive. We want our new nature. The real battle that we are called to in this life, one over fear, over bondage, over temptation and addictions, the, the pursuit of righteousness, our identity, strength, patience. Every parent said amen. Grace, healing, whether we're talking physical, mental, emotional. We don't find these things in the physical. We find them in the spiritual. We access them 
in the spiritual because they are components of the kingdom of God. A spiritual kingdom that lives in us and is supposed to come through us to affect the physical. So often we go looking for what we desire in the physical rather than accessing it in the spiritual and allowing it to permeate our world. We go looking for peace and looking for joy and looking for these things. And yet, Scripture is very clear. We have access to the fullness within us. We're called to let that truth permeate and change the world around us. See, the issue for the believer, issue sounds negative, the the challenge for the believer is that we were born physical. We grew up physically. We grew in our awareness of hunger, thirst, tiredness, emotions, and feelings. We are hardwired to live according to the physical. Live according to feelings. Live according to logic. Live according to reasoning. Oh, that sounds very reasonable. But being born again is where a spiritual awakening occurs. We're awakened to the Holy Spirit. We're awakened to the spiritual realm, to our true nature, which is eternal. You know, I get a real sense this morning that God wants to help some people to have a fresh awakening to the realities of the Spirit, the realities of the spiritual realm, that, that there's some adjustment, that, 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 that like for all of us, the journey of transformation is far less behavioral and far more at a core far more at a, at a worldview, how we perceive the world, where we get more and more permeated by a spiritual understanding. My father-in-law says this. He says that some people are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. It's slightly correct. Because I think the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we're meant to be. Because we can bring more of heaven to earth. We pray, God, I want your kingdom to come as it is in heaven, here on earth. What do you mean? Through you. It's in you. It's in you. The fullness of the Spirit is in you. Everything you need, it's in you. You have access to it. You've been born again. You're in the family of God. Spiritually, you're repositioned. You've got it all in the Spirit. You've got it all in the Spirit. God who supplies all my needs in the Spirit. We bring it in. Thanks for making time to hear this message today. We encourage you to connect with us by heading to c3victory.org.au. 